just read it for us, but I think Hebrews can be a bit tricky, and so I'd actually like to read the passage uh, together again, if that's okay. So looking again at Hebrews chapter 6, and we're actually going to be focusing today on verses 16 to 20, but we will begin with verse 13 because it helps us to understand the whole passage a bit better. So Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, it says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. So if you were here last week, then you would have heard um, Alex uh, reminding us of the promises that God gave to Abraham. Right, So we, we know that God promised to give Abraham a people and a place and a blessing. But as we read here today, if you look at verse 17, you'll see that God says that actually we are heirs of the promise, that we have inherited some part of this promise that God has made to Abraham. So that kind of asks the question, what is it exactly that we've inherited? What is the promise? Have we inherited a people or a place? What is it about this blessing? And so in order for us to understand this, we've kind of got to dig in a little bit. Now, the writer of the Hebrews, he gives us a clue. If you look at verse 13, he says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. So the writer here is referring to a specific time when God reaffirmed his promise to Abraham. Now the people who first received this message in Hebrews would have been a group of Jewish Christians. And so they would have already known quite quickly exactly the moment and the story that's being referred to. So we have to, in order to understand this and unpack what is the promise that we are inheriting, then we need to go back and try to understand what these Jewish Christians already understood. So if you go with me to uh, Genesis chapter 22, this is, the, this is the section that the Hebrew writer is referring to, Genesis chapter 22. And what we know that is happening in Genesis chapter 22 is that God has come to Abraham and he's asked Abraham to um, sacrifice his son Isaac. He wants him to take Isaac, who is the son that's been promised to him, to take him up to a mountain, to build an altar, and to sacrifice him. And so Abraham is obedient. And just as Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, God stops him and says, wait, don't do it. There's a ram in the bushes. Use the ram instead. And it's at this point in the story that we pick up in Genesis chapter 22, if you look at verse 16. 
Genesis chapter 22, verse 16, and we see that it's God here speaking to Abraham. And he says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. So we see here that God is reaffirming his promise. And so these Jewish Christians, they would have understood this story, and they perhaps would have seen that it seems that God has begun to fulfill this promise. There is a nation, and there was a time when Israel ruled and reigned in the times of of, of Saul and then David and Solomon, that, that, that Israel did have a land for a time. And yet, despite that, there would have been this feeling that perhaps the promise hadn't yet been fully fulfilled. And what these Jewish Christians uh, may have recognized, and what I believe the, the writer of the Hebrews was pointing them back to and pointing us back to, is to recognize the words that God used when he reaffirmed his promise to Abraham. Do you notice he said he swore by himself? But before this, he says, the reason, Abraham, that I'm giving you this promise, the reason that I'm reaffirming this promise to you is because you were obedient, because you were willing to sacrifice your only son. And perhaps that would have brought to mind the same exact words that were written by John in John chapter 3 and verse 16 when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That there's this picture, this reminder to these Jewish Christians and to us that here is Abraham and God has, has given him his son, the son of promise. And out of obedience, he's been willing to sacrifice the son of promise. And in the same way, Jesus is the Messiah who's been sent by God as the son of promise to take away the sin of the world. And so it's actually in Jesus then that the promises to Abraham are fulfilled. Do you see this? It's in Jesus that all nations, including us in this room, and we really do represent all nations, don't we? That all nations are blessed in Jesus because it's in Jesus that we have forgiveness of sins. It's in Jesus that we're given new life. And it's in Jesus that we have a hope for eternity. And so Jesus is the promise then that we've inherited. Verse 17, that we're heirs of the promise. Jesus is the promise then that we receive because of Abraham's obedience. Are you with me? Good. So, so the, the Jewish Christians who are receiving this message they would have understood this. And in fact, they would have accepted that Jesus was the Messiah. They loved God. They wanted to serve God. And they heard the story of Jesus. They had accepted that Jesus was the Messiah. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that in the midst of endeavoring to love God and serve him and follow Jesus and live the right way, that they began to wrestle with doubts and insecurities and, and, and uh, fears, perhaps, that maybe that maybe uh, this promise of Jesus, maybe it wasn't real. Maybe it wasn't the right thing. How do we know? That perhaps they began to wrestle with the intangible nature of, of, of following Jesus. See, because they'd never met Jesus. They'd never seen Jesus. They hadn't experienced Jesus like the disciples originally had, and so they wrestled with, is this true? 
right? I think that we can, can relate to that. At times, it is so difficult to have faith in something that you cannot see or touch or feel. And so these Jewish Christians were tempted to go back to something that was more tangible, not because they didn't love God, but because it was easier to go back towards the temple and the sacrifices and the high priests. Because that's something they can see and they can touch and they can feel. And so the writer of the Hebrews then is concerned with helping these Christians and helping us to recognize why we can have confidence that God's promise in Jesus is true. Why we can have confidence that this is something that is a tangible reality, even if we can't see it and touch it and feel it. And so the writer here gives us, in verses 13 to 17, he gives us two reasons why we can have confidence in in God's promise of Jesus. Uh, The first reason he gives us is in God's unchanging nature. If you look there at verse 17, it says, Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. So the first part of this this, uh, reason that we have confidence is because of who God is. The writer of Hebrews wants to remind us, remember who God is. God cannot lie. His promises are true. His words are trustworthy. If God makes us a promise, we know that it is true because it is not in God's nature to lie. That in and of itself should be enough. That should be all that we need because this is who God is and God's made a promise and that should be enough. However, what I love about this passage in Hebrews is I think it gives us a real glimpse of God's graciousness and his understanding of our own weaknesses. Because the writer goes on to give us a second reason why we can have confidence. It's not only his nature. If you look at verse 17 again, the second half there, right? It says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. So the writer says that God made an oath. What was the oath that he made? Well, we we started off with that in verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. What does that mean? What does it mean to swear by yourself? Well, again, we get a little bit of a better picture. If you look down at verse 16, it says, People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. Now, the way I think it's easiest to understand this idea of an oath is to think about a court of law. Now, I understand this is how it is in America, and I'm told that it's quite similar here in England. But uh, if you've seen any American like crime shows, then maybe you've seen this, where they, the witness is called into the court of law, and you stand up in court, and the bailiff comes before you, and they put a Bible in front of you. And you put your hand on the Bible, and he says, raise your right hand and repeat after me. I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And so we take an oath, right? He takes an oath in a court of law because we're affirming them. We're saying, yes, I'm telling the truth. I promise you that the things that I say are true and they can be trusted. But I'm taking an oath in the name of God as a back it, sort of backing it up, backing up what I'm saying, that you know that it's true because I'm saying it and I'm taking an oath in God's name. Now, why do we do this? Why do we, why do we take oaths like this? Um, the, Reason is simple, I think, and rather obvious, right? We live in a simple world. People are simple. They don't always tell the truth. People can be dishonest. They can lie. And so we take oaths in the name of someone greater than us to affirm that, yes, what I'm saying is true. You can absolutely trust it. 
You might even see this. I like to listen to kids when they're talking and they don't know and they don't know that you're listening and you just listen to their conversations. And I can recall having these kinds of conversations myself as a kid. We hear two kids chatting and one kid is telling the other one of some like outrageous thing that they're gonna do. Maybe, oh, my parents are taking me to Disney World. And the other kid doesn't believe them. Nuh-uh, you're just making that up. That's not true. You know, and what does the kid always say? It is true, it is true. You can ask my mom. Right? We appeal to someone greater than ourselves. We say, look, what I'm saying is true, but you don't have to take my word for it. You can ask this person who's greater and more trustworthy than I am, and they'll back me up. So we're familiar, even in our secular environments, we're familiar with taking oaths and even taking oaths in the name of God. And so what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that even though God's promise is secure and it is trustworthy and it is true, and we don't actually have a need for anything beyond God's word, but because God is gracious, because he understands that we live in a world where we struggle sometimes to know, is someone really telling us the truth? Is this really true? And so because God is loving and kind and gracious, he gives us an oath on top of his promise. And he says, you don't have to take my word for it. Actually, I'm giving you my oath that this is true. Only there's actually no one greater than God. We take an oath in the court of law in the name of God, right? Because he's greater than us. But there's no one greater than God. So he says, I'm giving you an oath. I swear by my own name. So the writer of the Hebrews wants us to understand that we can have absolute confidence that God's promise is true, that God's promise is trustworthy, that God's promise of a Savior in Jesus, that when God says that Jesus forgives our sins, we can trust that it is sufficient. The promise that Jesus gives us new life, that this is a hope we can cling to. And the promise that Jesus gives us a hope for eternity is certain. That we have a confidence that God's promise to us of Jesus is absolutely reliable and true. And so what the writer of the Hebrews does then in the rest of this chapter is he wants to help us to understand that because we have confidence in the promise of Jesus, we have a reason for hope. And in fact, he gives us three pictures or three reasons why Jesus gives us hope. So I want to look at these. Verse 18, it says, God did this, meaning giving this promise, so that by two unchangeable things, his word and his oath, so by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. God did this so that we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Now, I think actually there's another translation that helps us to understand this even better. Um, and that says, it's the same verse. It says, uh, God did this so that we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. I'll read that for you one more time. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. That phrase, taken refuge, would have brought to mind a powerful image um, from the Old Testament. The image of cities of refuge. That in the Old Testament, God had commanded the Israelites to set aside six cities of refuge. Now these cities were meant to be a symbol of hope. 
And how they worked is that if any person in Israel, whether an Israelite or a foreigner, if you were living in Israel and you um, killed someone by accident, not on purpose, but by accident, so you were innocent, and there was family members who wanted to take revenge and they wanted to take your life, you could run, you could flee for your life and run to the city of refuge. And as long as you stayed within the city of refuge, then you could escape death and you could make a new life there. So the city of refuge was a powerful image of hope. And so the writer of Hebrews then is drawing our minds back to this image of refuge. And he's telling us that Jesus is our city of refuge. That Jesus is the one in whom when we have made a mistake, we don't even have to be innocent. Even in our guilt, we can run to Jesus as our city of refuge. And when we run to Jesus, we have the opportunity to escape death and we have new life in him. So the writer then is telling us that this confidence that we have in the promise of Jesus gives us hope because Jesus is a refuge that we can run to when we're in trouble. The second picture he gives us is in verse 19. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So again, we have a picture of an anchor, right, of a ship that comes into harbor. And when the ship comes in, they pull the lever and the anchor drops down and the anchor holds the ship steady, right? It holds the ship firm and secure. But here's what is so important to recognize about an anchor. It is most needed when the waters are rough. The rougher the waters, the more unstable the ship, and the more necessary it is to have this anchor that drops down in the midst of everything, in the midst of all the roughness and all the waves and all the shaking. The anchor gives you the certainty of knowing the ship is stable. And I love this image, right, because when a sailor comes and he pulls the lever and the anchor drops, you can't actually see the anchor when it's doing its job. If you see the anchor, it's probably not holding you very secure. It's only really doing its job when it's way down deep in the midst of the trouble and you cannot even see it. And yet we know that it's there and it holds us secure. And so in the same way, the the writer of the Hebrews now is telling us that because of the promise we have in Jesus, we can have hope because Jesus is our stability in the midst of rough waters. You got this? So first, Jesus is our refuge when we're in trouble. And then Jesus is our stability in the midst of rough waters. As if this wasn't enough, if, if these two pictures are encouraging and hopeful and so filled with grace, he gives us yet one more image. If you look at the end of verse 19 and into 20, he says, It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Now, what's interesting here is this word forerunner. So this word uh, in the Greek only appears one time in the entire Bible in this verse. Now, the word is used in other places in Greek literature, and every time it's used, it has a military uh, connotation. So it will be used, uh, you could think of a, a reconnaissance team that will be sent forward into a dangerous place to prepare a way for the rest of the army to follow behind. And so the writer of Hebrews then is reminding us that Jesus is our, is our forerunner. Jesus is the one who goes before us into the future, into the unknown, into what could feel like dangerous spaces, and he creates a way, he provides a way for us to come behind him. 
And I think that's an important thing to understand. It's not that Jesus went ahead of us and he's just there. He went ahead of us with the expectation that we come behind him. A reconnaissance team, if they went forward and the army didn't come, then there would be no point. Why would you even send them? Jesus goes ahead of us into the future because he expects us to chase after him and to run after him. And so again, we have this encouragement that the promise we have in Jesus gives us hope because Jesus gives us confidence in the future. I think that this is such a beautiful picture of God's loving graciousness towards us. That he understands our weakness. He understands that at times it can be difficult to have trust and have confidence in what we cannot see. And yet he gives us this reminder, this affirmation that we can trust in his word. And that, and that when we trust in Jesus, when we recognize that his promise is true and secure, then we can have so many reasons for hope. That when we do wrong, that when we make mistakes, maybe we haven't yet chosen to follow Jesus, and yet we have this picture of Jesus as the refuge that we run to when we're in trouble. Or perhaps when the waters of life are difficult, when we're battling for our marriage or our kids, when we're battling against illness and death, and we're battling against so many things, and life feels rough and tumultuous, and yet we can cling to the hope that we have in Jesus that he is our stability in the midst of rough waters. And we're reminded that even when the future feels uncertain, even when it feels like we don't know what lies ahead, we don't know what difficulties could be there, and yet we cling to the hope of knowing that Jesus has gone before us and he's made a way for us. No matter what the future holds, we go into it recognizing that our hope is in Jesus. And so the encouragement that we have today is to have confidence that our faith is, is, is secure. That we have confidence in the word of, of God and in Jesus as the one who rescues us, the one who forgives our sins, the one who gives us new life and who gives us hope for eternity. And that we live as people of hope, recognizing that hope is a choice, right? There's that in uh, verse 18, it talks about taking hold of the hope, that we have a choice to grab a hold of hope. And sometimes we have to make that choice every single day to grab a hold of the hope that God has given to us in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we love you so much today, and I thank you that you that you are gracious and loving and kind, that you are true to your word, that we can trust you in what you say and what you promise, and that you are faithful to keep your promises. God, I thank you that you have sent Jesus and that we do have reason for hope. I ask today that whatever situation we find ourselves, whether we've not yet chosen to trust you and we need to take those first steps in recognizing that we can have confidence that your words are true, or whether we're battling in life, whether we're in some stormy waters, God, I ask today that you would give us the strength to cling on to hope, to cling on to your word, and that we would lean into you today. God, I thank you so much that you love us. We ask that as we um, seek to follow you, as we seek to cling to hope, that we would be a light to the people around us, that even in the midst of the roughest waters, people who don't yet know you would look at our lives and recognize that we have a hope no matter what the circumstances are. God, that we would be a beacon of light and encouragement and hope for those who need it. God, we ask that you would be glorified and you would be lifted up, that, you, uh, that your name would be made great in this place because of your hope and the promise that we have in you.
We love you so much. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just be still.